pastors here. And today we are starting a new series talking about difficult things in the Bible. Now, in your Bible reading, have you ever come across something that was confusing or hard to understand or difficult? I remember when I was a high school student that I had a King James version of the Bible that I had to have for school, and it was very confusing with all the these and the thous, and I kept coming across words that were difficult for me to understand, like in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10, where it says, divers' weights and divers' measures, both of them alike, abomination to the Lord. And as a teenager, I couldn't help but to picture like a diver in water, like somebody diving into the water with like a weight belt around their waist and probably some sort of like measuring tool as they're trying to find like oysters and pearls. And I just couldn't figure out why does God hate divers? Well, it turns out that divers actually means several or various And so what this verse is actually saying is that if you have several different weights and measurements that you use in the marketplace to always make sure that you get the best deal and that you're cheating other people, well, God hates that. And so sometimes when we come across difficult things in the Bible, uh, it can be a translation issue or a language issue. We just don't understand what's being said. But there's other times where we can come across things in the Bible where the words are easy for us to understand, but what it's asking us to do is difficult, is challenging, is hard for us to live out. Like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, where Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, Those words are easy for us to understand. We comprehend what Jesus is saying, but it's challenging for us to live them out. And so as we look at this series and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at things that are confusing or difficult in the Bible. And today I want to answer the question, why does Jesus want me to hate my family? Why does Jesus want me to hate my family? And I want to show you the offending verse here in just a moment. It's in Luke chapter 14. And so if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to join me in Luke 14. If you've got a Bible app, pull it out. We're going to be hanging out in Luke 14. We're going to be reading several verses. And I'm going to show you some other verses on the screen, but I want to give you an opportunity to join us at Luke chapter 14. All right? If you're still turning there, don't worry but I'm going to look at verse 26. And this is what Jesus says. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow! What is Jesus saying here? I mean, why is Jesus telling us to hate our family? We just looked at a verse where Jesus told us to love our enemies. We're to love our enemies but hate our family? What is Jesus saying here? And this is what we want to look at. Why does Jesus tell me to hate my family? And to answer this question, we have to look at two different parts. First, what does this mean? And then secondly, how can we do this? 
So we're going to start today at looking at what does this verse mean that Jesus would tell us to hate our father and our mother and our spouse and our children, our brothers and sisters. I mean, this is a challenging verse. Can you imagine coming across this in your Bible reading in the morning where you're reading? What is Jesus telling us? Can you imagine a secular person that you work with who knows you're a Christian coming to you and showing you this verse saying, hey, why is Jesus telling you to hate your family? Well, let's take a look at some different verses that help us to understand what Jesus is saying here. We can look at some other times that Jesus talks about similar things in the Bible. And so we can go to Matthew chapter 15, verse 4, and this is what it says. Jesus is talking again here, and he says, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So here, in this verse, Jesus is reaffirming the Old Testament commandment that we're to honor our father and our mother. We're to honor our parents. We're not to revile them. We're not to hate them. And so on one side, we've got Jesus saying, hate your family. And on this side, we have Jesus saying what the Old Testament tells us, that we're to honor our father and our mother. So what's going on here? Have we found Jesus contradicting himself? Or is there something else that we don't understand? And so we can look at another verse. This is Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, where Jesus talks about something similar. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so here in this verse, Jesus is telling us that we need to love him most. We need to love Jesus more than we love our father and our mother or even our children. And so this starts to help us to get an understanding of what Jesus is saying in Luke 14, 26. And if we go back and look at that verse again, the question we can ask ourselves is, is Jesus being literal? Is Jesus being literal here? And to understand that, we can kind of zoom back from just focusing on just this one verse, and we can look at the context of what's happening in the verses around this one. And so if you have your Bible and you're in Luke 14, you can go back and look from the beginning of the chapter, and we can start to see a picture of what's happening here. At the beginning of Luke 14, Jesus is invited to a dinner party by a uh, religious influencer. And so he ends up at this dinner party, and Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, which is already controversial. Then after that, Jesus goes and he uh, tells two different stories. He tells two parables. He tells a parable about if you are invited to a wedding feast, that you shouldn't try and sit in the seats of honor. Like if you go to a wedding, don't go and sit in the front rows where it's reserved for the family because someone is probably going to come along and boot you out of that seat because great aunt Edna has to sit there. And now you're trying to find a seat, but all the best seats are taken. Then Jesus tells us, Uh, or tells this crowd that's at this dinner party about a great banquet. 
And so in this part, Jesus is talking about people being invited to this party, in a dinner party, and when they get the invitation, they end up bailing on the party, and instead, they, uh, the master goes and invites other people, unlikely people, to come to this party. So it's the sick and the broken and the lonely, and those who are on the roads and in the hedges and in the ditches, they are the ones who end up being invited to this great banquet. And then after this part of Luke chapter 14, we see that now Jesus is with a crowd of people. And Jesus, in verse 25, now great crowds were accompanying him, and Jesus turns to the crowd, and he says, our offending verse that we've looked at, he says it to the crowd of people. But we can see that as we continue on in the chapter, Jesus is going to tell some more kind of pictures and stories that he's mentioning. And he's just been telling these parables a few verses earlier. And this gives us an indication that Jesus isn't being strictly literal here. Like where we should all just grab our phones and start a mass text to all of our family members and make sure you get them all in there and send them a text message saying, I love Jesus, I hate you. And then get ready to hit send. So don't hit send on that text message because we can see Jesus isn't being literal here. And the final piece of the puzzle to help us understand what Jesus is saying here is that when we look at the whole Bible and we look at the language and the culture of the Hebrew people and how they use their words, we can see multiple instances in the Bible where they use the word hating to actually mean love less. And so there's instances in the Old Testament where it'll say that an individual is hated. But the meaning of what's being conveyed there is that they're not reviled and despised, but they're loved less than another individual. And this is what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. That if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. That's to love them less. Because what Jesus is telling us is that we must love him most. Now, if we focus in, we kind of zoomed out and looked at the passage. We're going to continue on in it. But if we zoom in and look really closely at this verse, there's a number of incredible things that we can find in it. First of all, Jesus, he's turned to the crowd and he says, if anyone comes to me. And when we look at this verse and we look at the message of Jesus in the Gospels, we see that Jesus' invitation is open to anyone, that anyone can come and be his disciple. And just a few verses earlier in that story, he's telling about the great banquet. It's the broken and the hurting and the lonely. They are the ones who are invited. They're the ones who come to the party. He's showing it's really for anyone. And that is something for us to take note of, the message of Jesus, that salvation through Jesus is available to anyone, that anyone can be his disciple. And next, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me. And this is remarkable because we see throughout the Old Testament all the great heroes of the Bible pointing the people to God. We see the prophets of the Old Testament coming with their message pointing the people to God. 
We see the godly kings pointing people to God. We see angelic messengers, angels saying, don't worship me, worship God. And here comes Jesus, and he's saying, come to me. And this is something to take note of, that he's directing us to himself, to be his disciple, to follow him. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, does not love less his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. And Jesus is saying this to a great crowd of people. And these first century people are all about family. The family relationship supersedes every other relationship in their lives. It's all about what the family wants, what's best for the family. And Jesus comes crashing in saying, actually, I need to be above all of your family relationships, that you need to love your family less than you love me, that I must be loved most. And this is something that the people around him, they can understand it, but it's incredibly difficult and challenging for them to hear. Now, we live in a Western, more individualistic society. And so maybe, I know we have a very multi-ethnic church, and maybe some of you have grown up more with those strong ties of family and responsibility to your family. But for most of us, where we've grown up more as individuals and we love our family, but it's maybe not the same level of concern if Jesus were to ask us and say, do you love me more than your father and your mother? But we still are good at making idols out of our relationships. And an idol is anything that we elevate above Jesus. It's a good thing in our life that we turn into the ultimate thing, where it's all about that relationship. And so Jesus would ask us, do you love me more than your spouse? Do you love me more than your children? Or for many of you here today, do you love me more than your grandchildren? Jesus says, do you love me more than any relationship? That he must be loved most. And one of the ways that we can find out if we have any idols in our relationships, if there's any of our relationships that are trying to sneak in and get above Jesus, is if we ask ourselves the question, is there a relationship that if I were to lose that relationship, if there was a breakdown between me and that person, or there was a tragedy, or I could no longer see them or have that relationship, that it would throw my life into crisis, where I would say, I don't even know if life is worth living anymore. And if so, then maybe that has become an idol. Maybe that's something that is sneaking up in our heart to where we love it, that good thing that Jesus has given us, we love it more than Jesus. And so Jesus crashes in to this Eastern idea of family and the importance of family more than anything else. And then Jesus follows it up with going after what we in our Western society love most, ourselves. 
And he says, and even his own life, that we are to hate our own lives. We're to love less our own lives. And this is much more challenging for me because I love me. I think about me all the time. I'm kind of obsessed with me. And Jesus is saying that he must be loved most. More than I love my goals or my career or my ministry or my health. Any of these things, that if any of these things were to go away or I didn't have them anymore, I didn't have my ministry, which is just a very spiritual way of saying my career. If I couldn't do this anymore, would it throw me into spiritual crisis where I'm not sure what I believe anymore? If I lost relationships or if I lost the things that I hold dearest to me, the things I'm desiring for, if I never achieved that goal, if that dream that I have, that I'm pursuing, never comes true, will I still be enough with only Jesus? Jesus is saying to us that if we want to be his disciple, We must love him most. And as we look at these relationships that we have, and we look at these uh, desires that we have for ourselves, we can remember that there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who it has cost them everything to love Jesus more than their family, to leave the religion of their family or the way of thinking of their family, and be a disciple of Jesus leads to them being ostracized or persecuted. And while that may not be the same level of experience that we have in our lives every day, we can remember our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is sharing some difficult things for us. It may not be that we need to send that text message saying we hate our family, but to love Jesus most. And when we zoom out and we look at the context of this passage, we see that Jesus isn't done. It's not just this one verse that he says. It continues in verse 27, where Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If we can get that up on the screen. It's Luke 14, 27. Jesus says another way that we cannot be his disciple is if we won't bear our own cross. And in the Roman Empire, there was no more terrible way to die than to be crucified as a common criminal. There was no more shameful death to your family than to be a criminal who had to carry the cross beam of the cross, the instrument of your own torture, that you had to carry it to the site of your execution, where the crowd could gather around, and to the shame of your family, you're killed as a common criminal. But Jesus is saying, if we want to be his disciple, we need to bear our cross and come after him. Again, this is incredibly challenging for the audience to hear 2,000 years ago and for us to hear today. And still Jesus continues in verse 28. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough 
to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a far way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, when we look at this verse and we begin to unpack what Jesus is saying, it's actually gotten a lot worse for us. It's not just hate your family, which we know means love your family less than we love Jesus, but now it's also bear your cross and renounce everything if we want to be his disciple. So isn't this just an exciting way to kick off the month of August and our new series? Aren't you glad you came to church on the long weekend to be encouraged In between those last two things, Jesus shares a couple examples about how we are to count the cost. And he's showing the seriousness of what he's saying. And this is what I appreciate so much about Jesus, is that he is not a salesman here. He's not selling us on anything. He's really laying out the challenge before us of being his disciple. And that part of it is that we need to sit down and count the cost. Now, for myself, I am somebody who has grown up in church. I've grown up in church, this church, my whole life. I started working here when I was 21 years old, and I've been working here since. I've been a part of this church for a long time, and if you hang out in church long enough, eventually someone is going to ask you the question, when did you become a Christian? For some of us, that might be like yesterday or a week ago, or when you were 35, or when you were 21, or maybe you were 17 or 14 at youth camp, and you gave your heart to Jesus. Or maybe it was when you were seven years old, or five years old in the children's ministry, or maybe you had Christian parents, and they helped you to pray the prayer. But for myself, whenever anybody asks me that question, I always kind of feel like I've just been a Christian like my whole life. Like, since I had rational thought, it was just all about singing the songs and praising Jesus and praying prayers and living for Jesus and loving Jesus. And so when that is your experience, you're just kind of growing up in this culture of church and it's just kind of normal to love Jesus and be all in for him. And what I appreciate is that Jesus here is saying that at some point, each and every one of us, whether you were saved yesterday or 10 years ago or when you were two and a half years old and you started singing songs to Jesus, that each one of us has to count the cost, to take it seriously, to sit down and say, can I see this through for my whole life? Do I really want to be a disciple of Jesus? Do I want to go from being in the crowd, the mob around Jesus, who's interested and pro-Jesus and willing to listen to him, to going all in to being a disciple, to say, I am going to do this my whole life, no matter what comes my way, the good or the bad, 
that no matter what I lose or what I gain, I am a disciple of Jesus. I love him most. I'm willing to bear my cross, the pain of it, the difficulty of it. And I'm even willing to renounce all, to surrender everything that I have in my life to Jesus. To surrender it to him. To not be holding on to these things. But when we count the cost, we see the difficulty of this. The challenge of this. And so we've gone through the first part of the question of why does Jesus want me to hate my family. We've seen that Jesus isn't being literal here. He's actually saying that he wants us to love our family less. That our love for him is so great, it makes our love for our family seem like hate in comparison. So we can understand what Jesus means, even to carry our cross, to die to ourselves, to surrender all to him. But now we move to the second part of the question, which is, how do we do this? Because Jesus is asking a lot from us, that we love him more than any of our relationships, that we love him more than we love ourselves. This is incredibly countercultural. This goes against doing what feels good and what you feel is right and is just right for you and self-care and looking out for you, number one, because nobody else is going to look after you. And Jesus is saying instead to carry our cross, to love him most, to surrender all to him. How do we do this? And one of the great things about Jesus is that he models what he teaches He doesn't ask us to do something that he hasn't done in his life. And we can look at these things that Jesus is asking of us, and we can see how Jesus lived this out in his life. Did you know that Jesus had a family? Of course, you probably have heard of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph. And then uh, Mary and Joseph. We know Jesus was born of a virgin. It was a supernatural birth. Mary was his mother. He's the son of God. And Mary and Joseph had other children. And so Jesus had these step-siblings that he grew up around. The Bible tells us about one of them. His name is James, the brother of Jesus. And the Bible tells us, that James, the brother of Jesus, did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God until after Jesus' death and resurrection. And if Jesus was in his early 30s when he died, his whole life of growing up, when his ministry begins, to have your brother, your half-brother, John, James, I'm sorry, not believe that you're the Son of God, To have your family think you're crazy, that you're out of your mind. The Bible tells us about this in Mark chapter 3. Jesus goes back home. It says, then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when Jesus' family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. The siblings that Jesus grew up with would have been the closest relationships, the longest terms relationships that he had in his life, and they didn't believe in him. And Jesus modeled 
to us what it looks like to love our family less than Jesus loved his Father in heaven. That Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to bear the cross. He died a shameful death. He was crucified. Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to renounce all. Jesus died in poverty. He wasn't sitting back in luxury, getting rich off of his followers who were giving him everything he could ever want. No, Jesus died a terrible death in poverty. But three days later, he rose again in splendor and victory. He modeled for us what this looks like to live out these difficult things that he's asking us to do as his disciple. And the second key for us to understand how can we do this? How can we love him most? We find the key in the love of Jesus. That Jesus loves you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. Jesus loved you first. Before he ever required anything of you, he loved you. He loves you first. And when we get to understand this incredible, supernatural love that Jesus has for us, that he loves us first, that while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us because he loved us. He gave himself for us. And when we understand that, his love motivates us to live out as his disciples. The great love that he has for us, we return the love to him. And we can love him most, more than our other relationships, more than we love ourselves, because he first loved us. And the final key to this is we can look at the life of Paul, one of the heroes of the New Testament, who lived this out, who modeled this in following Jesus, in being a disciple of Jesus. And so we see the example of Jesus, but we can also look to the life of Paul. And Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And what Paul is saying here is available to us today as disciples and followers of Jesus, that we too can be crucified with Christ. We die to ourselves. We're crucified with Christ. And so now, we're not living for ourselves anymore. And it's Christ in us. We are in Christ. He is in us. And we have his spirit that is with us. We know Jesus is with us wherever we go. We have him. We're in Christ. And when we live out this way, 
we recognize it's not just me living by myself anymore. Jesus is with me. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of me. And so now the life that I live as I'm walking around in the flesh in my day-to-day life, I live it by faith in Jesus, in the Son of God. Can we keep that verse on the screen? We live it by faith in the Son of God because, Paul says, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And that's our motivation, is that every single day we can remember that Jesus loved me. He loves me, and he gave himself for me. And that's why I can live this out. That's how we can do this, how we can be disciples of Jesus, how we can love him most, how we can bear our cross and die to ourselves, how we can surrender all to Jesus. He has cleared every obstacle between us and him. He cleared them all away. He made a way for us to be his disciples.